0: This is the second part of our interview with Sean Esther Powell uh, from the Celtic Myths and Legends podcast. I hope you enjoy, and especially in Celtic rules, with with how like the the family law structure in in Wales was very different than say England. So your responsibility to your elder was actually more important to you than say the crown on occasion and they had more to say in who you married and what you did than, than the crown ever did. So in a way, it, you know, that you can see why the family would be much more important to most people than any nation state would be.
1: Oh yeah. Old Welsh laws are brilliant, actually. I'm a good reader of some of those. Um, yeah, they're really interesting when you look at ancient Welsh laws and like you said, very, very different, um, very different too. um, english laws
0: of the time as well yeah i mean just simply we, we've covered a lot on inheritance and how those vary and it's funny because when you think of it from a modern perspective you're like well it makes sense but in that era that was very different
1: well if you think about it there were so many different lords and petty kingdoms and things like this and like i said there was a a real real important emphasis put on um, lineage and um, genealogy so you had to know that your son was your son you had to know that your grandfather was your grandfather because it was following this long kind of family line connecting you to what you owned what was yours what land was yours um so it's very important to have that kind of strong family structure just be just to kind of protect your assets really if anything
0: yeah. Yeah, for sure. And of course that's that's what led to the split up of the various kingdoms because the more family you have, the more opportunity they have to inherit. And uh yeah, it led to some fun discussions. <laughs> but yeah, it it's a very interesting sort of discussion to have and I think it's kind of entertaining in some ways to kind of see how people interpret things differently and and how they deal with it and I know probably the most controversial subject I've ever brought up in this podcast is Arthur and the perceptions that people have about him. And I've actually had responses back saying, oh, how could you ever think that? It's so wrong. <laughs> so it, it, you can see that people still value the older ideas, the old stories, whether those old stories are accurate or not is always, I think it's still something that people look at and and cling to. I don't know if that's the right word, but you know what I mean? like.
1: I think so. In a way, people are very drawn to Arthur. You know, Arthur exists not just in Welsh mythology, not just in French literature, not just in um, pop culture, but he's he's permeated everything. Really, you know, from mm. from music, you know, Roxy Roxy. Um, music doing Avalon to Mists of Avalon you know the well-known book series to all these places where you can find Arthur and this idea of Arthur you know it's it's a legend that has escaped where its origins if you will it's so much bigger than just being um like I said Welsh mythology or French literature Arthur as a figurehead and as a hero is is um a hero that people cling to is a hero that people are still very much interested in um and as a legendary hero you know there's always this big interest in proving that legendary rulers and heroes were actually real and then there's always the case of oh so he must have been from here oh no he must have been from here so as i said earlier i uh, made my little reference to um cornwall because we've got our own ideas that arthur was actually Born in Tintagel, so you've got Tintagel Castle now. That's looked after by English Heritage, and they they really drum up that Arthurian narrative there when you visit it. It's brilliant, but it is very much drawing on legend and and myths and legend to kind of draw up emotion in people, and it does. It works.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and probably money.
1: (laughs) Oh yeah, they need the money.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I always think of that. It's always you know whenever. Kind of thing. It it reminds me actually of of Edward, uh, the first, when he uh, discovered in quotes the the burial places of Guinevere and Arthur, and there's all this coverage of kind of you know him bringing them out and honoring them, and they were like as if they had never lost, you know, they were as if they were not dead, they were just asleep, sort of idea. And then he reburied them to make sure that the Welsh knew that he knew where they were, and they weren't getting out, and it's just funny to me that that just the way that this whole thing which really does start in that like 11th and 12th century has come to the point now where we write book after book after book trying to identify as you said you know where Arthur it really was from which character which kind of has the name sort of fits that category and then I always go back to Gildas when it comes to this stuff because Gildas is someone who's raging at people. I mean, he's basically writing his Old Testament uh shout fest, um, basically saying how bad the Welsh have gotten and how or the Britons have gotten, because of course they weren't Welsh then, uh, and and how this is why we have this plague of Saxons. And he never brought up an Arthur. <laughs> so so you're kind of like, well, if he'd have been looking back at some golden age. And there's no mention. Kind of makes you wonder.
1: Well, exactly. Especially as they would have been contemporaries. um, Because Gildas, if I I, might be completely wrong, um, was a sixth century. Um, He was in the sixth century. And that's where Arthur was supposedly from as well. You know, fifth or sixth century ruler or hero. So they would have been contemporaries or they would have at least he would have at least heard of Arthur surely yeah considering
0: <laughs> yeah you would think yeah this is this is why people usually point to Ambrosius as the as the Arthurian possibility because he's the one that sort of is mentioned as being the noble good guy you know the former roman official who did something really good but nobody really can identify that for sure and that's where I kind of I always sort of say there's nothing wrong with following myths and having beliefs in myths but it, you have to couch it in kind of realism on some of these things and, and with Arthur that's it's very difficult to say definitely a yes or definitely a no that's where we're at so
1: I think there's a real attraction to that kind of romanticism as well of was he real was he not um like you said uh Edward the first or edward the second i can't remember Um, first first yeah edward the first unveil unveiling like the burial places of um welsh former welsh nobles um it's you know it's ancient tourism it makes sense people are very attracted to this idea of um where people were buried where people were born where people lived um
0: who they knew so Mm -hmm.
1: yeah it's, it's well, very, and, and
0: um... p- pilgrimage was a big part of, of religious upbringing in that in those eras too oh, so the... pil-
1: pilgrimage was all about money
0: <laughs> yeah well yeah it's... oh yeah no, I, I get that it, but it was... but in the mentality of the people of the time it was kind of like oh i need to do this now of course it's all about a tourist trap effectively you well know.
1: E- even at the time pilgrimage is really interesting actually because I I feel like pilgrimage is different for for some people and it is different for other people. For example, uh, pilgrim sites for the monks actually uh, living in a site that was being visited was about money because pilgrims bring a lot of money. You know, they stay there, they eat your food, they drink your wine or what have you. Monks did like to brew lots of wine and other other things. They might not like to admit that, but (laughs) they did. Um, (laughs) for the people visiting these sites of pilgrimage um yeah they they were their spiritual sites you're wanting to have some kind of spiritual journey some kind of learning epiphany um and then for other people like i said the people that are there it's about money it's about making money
0: <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: it's an interesting thing with the church you know you can have the spiritual element to it and also the kind of monetary element as well
0: yeah for sure the last last episode that we've just recorded or I keep saying we, but it's me, uh, talked a lot about how the church was transitioning in this period and kind of becoming much more um, powerful to the point where they owned one-third of the land in Western Europe. So, of course, they wanted to keep having money flow in as much as possible, especially with the way they were building at the time. So I, it makes sense, and and I don't discredit some of the ideas, but obviously, you know, when everybody has a piece of the cross, eventually, sooner or later, it's going to be bigger than the cross. Um, it's just the way it works. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, no, I, I think, and I think in a way, that's what myths do. We think about like uh, the way war memorials are treated in this day and age, kind of how there's sort of that idea of pilgrimage with those kind of things or going to your nation's capital or all of those kind of ideals that people have about you know, what area is significant to them or what has a sentiment to them and kind of how people will talk about them when they go there. You know, they, they usually talk about them in, in almost reverential tones, which you can kind of see how that would be something, you know, in an era where magic exists, where ideas about the closeness of the spiritual world is very strong. Uh, I think there'd be even to my mind a greater attachment to those kind of things like I think that's why they they the the stories and the myths were held on to so strongly um, because they were kind of linking people back to a different sort of environment a different world I guess uh, be it you know an old history or an old or even sort of like leprechauns and this kind of thing where it's all just you know where people acknowledge that they're not real or not historical but maybe they believe they're real or maybe they have a concept that they exist um and you know or the fairies or the elves or any number of different things that ran around so it's one thing i've thought about is is just how that kind of gives people a sense of of place a sense of hope and like i say it allows them to sort of link to other things outside of themselves maybe um I think that's what religion does, but I, I suspect there was things outside of that from, like I say, myths and legends. I mean, one of the things we've talked a little bit about on the podcast is how when the church reached Britain, there were all these Celtic gods floating around and eventually they became, at least in some cases, uh, Celtic saints because the church couldn't make headway of getting rid of them, it seemed.
1: Yeah, there's a really interesting kind of intersection Um between kind of paganism and Christianity um, in a lot of the Celtic lands, because a lot of the things that people think are very Celtic, are very pagan are actually Christian, um, or at least kind of very, very early Christian. Um, a lot of imagery that's quite kind of um tying into green men and things like that. It's actually, you know, you see it, it's not a very old um piece of imagery. Um, You know, you visit a lot of old churches in Cornwall and in Wales as well, and there's always a Celtic cross in front of them. Um, This idea of being kind of different is, I think Cornwall and Wales have a lot of, um, uh, there's a lot of parallels between the two. You can definitely, definitely um, see that.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think they remained in conversation as long as they were both independent too. That's one thing I've definitely noticed, like trade and all that continue to exist between the Old North, which is basically this. The a news story gets shared by a friend on social media or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10 part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune into disinformation wherever you get your podcasts, and remember, don't believe
2: everything you read. Hello, everyone. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.
0: English-Scottish border area where there were still Britons, and then down to Cornwall where they were, you know, still working within each other. I mean, Tintagel had been getting copper from Wales for example as one of the places where they got it from so they were and they had contacts to Byzantium from from what we understand so they they had connections to the outside world that still linked them back to Rome going into the into the later antiquity and, and early medieval periods which I think is interesting and I think very fascinating to sort of look at and you can kind of see how stuff would just sort of spread between all those groups, because there'd still be, you know, sailors coming in and bringing, you know, stories of different events and adventures and all that kind of stuff. So it'd still trickle in from various places. And certainly, as Christianity moved in, I, I don't, I, I often say when I'm uh, when you look at Christianity's development in Western Europe, what you see is it kind of not just simply taking over but merging into the common culture. There isn't like a, a track where you say, oh yeah, definitely after this, they totally did everything different. I mean, uh, one of the things I brought up the other day in on Twitter was the idea and the concept of, of the wearing of white, the idea of the pontiff were actually Roman pagan religious thoughts. They weren't Christian. Those came later. And certainly that Kind of influence and, and sharing of cultural ideals happened here as well I think in in britain it's it's pretty obvious that happened
1: it's definitely I, it's definitely a gradual process and i think um in the same way that you have um, as you were saying um, earlier about indigenous cultures having this kind of narrative about being pushed out um, in the same way that you have this Welsh narrative about being kind of pushed out of their own lands. You also have this idea from some people that believe that pagans were kind of pushed out of um, their lands by Christians. And I don't know if it really was like that. It was more, perhaps it was in a way, but it was more a gradual process of adopting elements of um, local people's folklore and culture and kind of assimilating that into the church. So I don't. I'm not a I'm not a Christian scholar. I don't know too much about the kind of um, gradual process of Christianity in the British Isles and in Europe. But it is definitely um, a topic that I think deserves a lot more discussion um, and a lot more a lot more kind of discussion outside of just this romanticized view of Christians versus pagans.
0: Yeah, you have to understand. I mean, we we always look back at the bigger stories like where the Saxons fought the Germanic Franks and were forcibly converted. And that kind of becomes sort of the storyline for, oh, that must have been how it happened to everybody. But I mean, these were, you can, all you have to do is read a bit of bead and you realize that that's not actually how things happened. It was a very, very gradual process. Uh, still pagan Anglo-Saxons running, or, or Saxons running around well into the 8th century, I mean, and ninth century, so.
1: Yeah, if you look at old kind of Irish literature, um, for example, I did cover it on my, in my podcast, actually, The Voyage of Male um, This, th- These were written by um, religious men. These were written by men of the church, um, the, the, You know, the only ones literate at the time in Ireland. But They incorporate kind of fantastical elements and very, you know, fantasy things. And there's a druid in that story who actually tells the hero, he's a secular hero, he tells the hero um, what to do. And his advice is actually correct. So you have this druid character that could be seen as a pagan. And he's he's not an evil character, he's actually completely true in his prophecy. And I always thought that was quite an interesting element, that you have this Story, obviously, um, presumably written by a Christian, written by a monk, that's not showing paganism and Irish folklore and fantasy in a negative light. You know, it's it's very much a joining of two things.
0: Yeah, and I, I think you really don't see that sort of orthodox versus unorthodox until you get to the medieval period where there does become a threat to the overall orthodoxy. And that's where I think the collision starts to happen, because I mean, just on the basis of how things were kind of dealt with, I, uh, yeah, I mean, there was still a lot of the things that we just assume were in Christian thinking prior to the medieval period. I don't even think existed until the medieval period. So I, I, I think it's it's something you have to be very aware of when you look at these kind of things, and, and I think we make assumptions based on our predetermined notion of whether it's good or bad, and, and I'm not here to say one way or the other, but I think there is there is some commonality and, and some understanding that has to be made by people to sort of realize that, that, that things were probably not as fast or as quick as it's described in history. Quite often, historical writings are tilted by the writers of the history. Um, Like the idea of a Saxon being strictly someone who came from overseas from Germany and settled and then just basically killed off any Britain that was in their way is provably false. But there's still a lot of people that hold to that. There's still enough people that think that happened, that it's, it's like trying to talk to them, you know, to say, well, even a middle ground becomes very difficult to have that conversation. And it, it's it's interesting because you have so much of that wrapped up in the in the myth. I mean Bede's stories and, and Gildas' are nothing more than myth, different than than Arthur. Hengist and Horsa and all those people may or may not have existed and, and the story of the foundation of Anglo Saxon domination in England is at best speculative. Um, And I think we have to be careful when we, you know, a, a proper academic historian would always say you have to be careful about these kind of things. You can't make those kind of blanket statements because we just don't know. And archaeologists would be very clearly able to point out where that would be identifiably false, where you have grave sites which have Celtic people being buried beside Saxon people. You have people who were obviously from, other places who are wearing clothes that are de- identifiably Celtic. There, there's nothing that says for sure one way or the other, that this is what happened. It's just we have these writings that we have to take into account and be mindful that, that they're writing a history. It's just you have to be careful to say, okay, how much of this can I say for sure is accurate or how much of this can I say for sure isn't. If I can't say for sure, then I should at least qualify that when I'm talking. You know, so that people understand that, yes, we think it's this way, but we don't know it's this way. And I mean,
1: yeah, certainly. I mean, especially when you start looking at history, um, ancient history, that's kind of half or more than half shrouded in myth and legend rather than actual archaeological and actual literary records. You know, you have people view that then and they take, like you said, people take their own preconceived biases and notions and then imprint that on whatever pieces of evidence that they can find to um, agree with that. And you have to realize that a lot of our history kind of is seen through the lens of historians and they weren't unbiased at all.
0: No, no. <laughs> yeah, and I would argue it's very difficult to be completely unbiased in any of these circumstances. I've always... Looking at things via perspectives that we're brought up in. I mean, our understanding of nation states is categorically different than the way they existed prior to, say, the 1700s. And yet, we'll still look at things through that lens because that's what we're, that's our our understanding. So it, it it I think the big trick is to be able to say, as an academic, to go and say, okay, knowing that how do I look at this in a way that makes sense to what was going on instead of what I perceive was going on or the assumption I want to make when looking at a document that says, Oh, this person's just like me and I see exactly what they're going through because it's just exactly like what I go through. And yet you go, well, yes and no. (laughs) And it's, it's interesting. I think history is incredibly fascinating. I think it's it. And I, I love looking at the mythology that goes around it because I think it's integral to how we perceive our histories. Um, And there's a lot of talk in academic circles about the idea of memory and kind of what that does to people where what you think happened is more important than what really happened. Because if an event happens to you, you you might write it down when the event happens to kind of not go into this in huge detail, but say you're in a car accident, you wrote it down at that moment and you, so, you know, you gave out everything you knew about the accident. Then seven or eight years later, somebody says, Hey, you we're involved in this accident. What do you remember about it? And then you spout again, what you remember? Well, now what you remember has probably been influenced by well, forgetting some things uh, what may have happened in the aftermath, if there's a police report or if it made them news media, you maybe remember more than you probably did at the time. And some cases, you probably remember less than what you did at the time. And so your writing down that history in quotes can be difficult to sort of extrapolate as being the same level as the one that you wrote when it happened. And both could be accurate, but they might be accurate from different angles. Or they both could be very inaccurate for different reasons. And so I think historians grapple with that all the time. I mean, it's it's when you're doing ancient history, one of the things that always comes to mind is is a professor talking about this one time with me, about the idea that when you have ancient sources, you have to understand Well, at a higher level, when you're looking at something that's been written, like in the 1900s, we have World War II, you have so many sources you pull from from that incident from the day of the incident in any point in the war, from government documents down to a, someone's personal journal to letters they were writing back home. But if you look at a, at an ancient source and you the dark ages you know in the, in the late antiquity uh you would find that you're basing everything on one guy who may be writing three or four hundred years later and that you know, the founding of Rome is a great example of that. I mean, according to them, they came from Troy, which which we know is patently false, but that was what they understood to be the case.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean I did my I did my um, bachelors in ancient history actually. I love I love ancient history. Um
0: mm-hmm.
1: um I'm definitely not an academic snob. <laughs> I think folklore and mythology is just as much an important historical tool as as literature and as archaeology. So I don't want to mock people for kind of reading into um, ancient history and reading into things through their own lens. Um, but it's definitely something to remember, isn't it? That when you get to this period of history where you don't have um, literary references where you where you don't have archaeological evidence or any kind of reference in law books in courts um anywhere at the time that might have named someone when you don't have that name and someone does kind of become part of a legend uh, it's easy to kind of put all of our beliefs and thoughts on that person then whereas i think what's so attractive about Owen Glendower is we know that he existed we know that he was a real person um, so it's it's really easy then to make a kind of romantic hero out of him and put all these legends and kind of m- myths and romanticism onto him and also be um, kind of validated because he was real and he did exist.
0: Mm hmm. Yeah. And I guess that's, that's the point I wanted to get back to. You did a very good job of taking us back full circle, which (laughs) I I appreciate because realistically, I mean, that's, that's what it comes down to. Like even today we, we still have, I mean, so my first understanding of who Owen Glinduer was came as a high school student, looking things up in a, in a library. And because I I was curious to know more about whales in general and the, exposure I got from him was through poets who were writing at the time, through the scholars that were writing their own version of the history at in later obviously in more modern era and it was really sort of romantic in the way it was written generally and I don't think there's anything wrong with that but I do think you have to be cognizant that that there are real people behind the stories and you need to Except that sometimes they have flaws, <laughs> and sometimes they're they're not necessarily the nicest people in the world. Like you know, we we the example I could bring up from past episodes would be would be Llewellyn the Great because his or Llewellyn the Last actually, sorry, because his storyline effectively becomes one of a lost opportunity. This is a guy who had done all these brilliant things, had united the kingdom, blah blah the reality of it is it's also a story of someone stubborn and so unwilling to bend that even at the end, he couldn't see what was coming because his own perception of things was so slanted. And he'd gotten to the point where he just wasn't going to accept that he'd lost effectively. And I think that, that's both the great thing about him, but it's also the bad part because it does lead to these kind of situations, you know, and, and, but that doesn't make him somehow lesser because of that. That just makes him human because we all have these kind of problems. Um, so I I love that kind of thing when you can kind of get into who the person is and kind of understand them. But I mean, myths are, are things that we use to sort of understand the world. And I think they're, they are, I have lot of value in and of themselves so it 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 just you i always find it really interesting to sort of see how this kind of ideal of arthur then sort of transfers to glendure to an extent and how kind of that ideal that he might come back simply because we don't know where he died uh does become sort of a myth-making thing and because he was the last real successful Uh, individual who became native Prince of Wales Um, you know it, it even I think makes a stronger connection in a way that other things wouldn't have if that continued struggle like I think of Scotland where there's many many examples of characters that you could use from Scottish history who were important to keeping Scotland independent and they're you know in some ways mentioned but but nowhere are they wrapped up in the same level of myth making as I think people like Glendower are because of what came after
1: well, yeah, definitely, and as you were saying about um like it's really great when you can kind of read the actual human details about someone outside of their myth and legend. I think that's what's so great about um Owen Glendower as well or Glendower, I'm not quite sure <laughs> um, but he's definitely. Uh, He was using romanticism and myth and legend at the time as well, you know, when he was actually revolting. For example, you could say um, he didn't start out with this idea of um, representing the Welsh against the English. He was a lord, you know, on a borderland between England and Wales who had parts of his land seized by a neighbouring lord and was, was just a bit grumpy about that. So you could say what started off as a simple tiff between lords then became so powerful, it it, it captured the kind of hearts and minds of people at the time. You know, you had scholars, Welsh scholars in Oxford University going back home to Wales. You had um, Welsh craftsmen working in England going back home to Wales. You know, I don't think that Owain started... Um, his kind of petty rivalry with a, a neighbouring lord, knowing that it was going to become so powerful, knowing that it was going to get that kind of importance and significance to it. I think only afterwards did he descri- did he ascribe this kind of mythic Welsh uh, hero to himself. You know, when he pronounced himself the um, the Prince of Wales, only then did he kind of use his. Hereditary lineage, if you will. I think beforehand it was about one thing, then it became another. So, as I was saying earlier, you know, all movements need a figurehead, and I think he realised that he was a figurehead for Welsh revolt against the English. But I don't think I'm not again. I'm not a scholar on this subject, so there might be scholars listening that think, "Oh God, what is she talking about?" But I I wouldn't say for certain that he started off with this agenda if you know what i mean
0: no i i just from what i've been able to read so far i would agree um i think it's it's something where it kind of came about after the fact i think it helps when you have good propaganda and one of the things that he definitely had was some good propaganda because his his bards were out there kind of talking about him in such a way both before and after as sort of that mythic figure but i don't think that's where it began. I don't think that was I think you're correct. Cause because there were things going on in Wales at the time that that as I say, we'll we'll get to where where the revolts were coming. But Glindor was a part of the English nobility. He was, you know, a supporter of Richard II. He was not someone who was looking to be a, a, a to use a modern parlance separatist. He was someone who had been embedded with that ideal for quite some time and there was no reason for him to just rush to do this but whenever it seems like you get into disputes between nobility in this era and the king decides to favor one over the other it was always a sign that well it's time to go against the king and I think that was the bigger driving force. Like you say, I don't think he initially started out with that concept in mind, but it just so happened that it, it was at a perfect time period where the Welsh public were needing someone like that or wanting someone like that. I mean, they were throwing the English categorically across the nation at that point, And think- it had nothing to do with him.
1: I think that you're absolutely 100% correct. You know, you've got all these people, all these very important figures in history who had people rally around them. Um, I think a lot of the time it was just about timing. They said the right things at the right time for the right audience. There was kind of, like you said, things were happening anyway. So there were sparks happening across Wales, happening across England anyway. And then he happened to come along and bang, then there was a fire. It, mm-hmm. it it was definitely the correct timing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, well, I could go on about this for a while, but I've kept you here for an hour. So <laughs> I think this is probably a good spot to end. And I know it's later for you than me. Where can we find you out there in the interwebs?
1: Oh, out there in the 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 dark in- No, not the dark web. I don't know why I said <laughs> no, that. No, not the
0: dark web. We don't talk about <laughs> please, that. <yeah.
1: laughs> please, please don't look there. <laughs> um I don't really know what that even is to be honest. Um you can find me um on Twitter as Sean Esther. I post a lot about history and folklore and things like that. But primarily, if you're interested in myths and legends, especially pertaining to Wales, um, which I'm assuming your listeners will be, um, you can find my podcast at Celtic Myths Pod on Twitter. It's the Celtic Myths and Legends podcast. So I'm on iTunes and Stitcher and um, Spotify and I think most of the other ones, I hope. I'm not really quite sure where I am. But, you know, I, the podcast surfaces up quite a bit, so you can find me on there. Um, so that's why I would direct you.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh I have listened to a few of the episodes. I really like it. I think you're the, the you really do a great job kind of covering these ideas and getting across so many cool aspects that uh, yeah for sure I please go check it out and um, if anybody has any further questions or comments or concerns or anything else you can reach me at the uh, Welsh History podcast at gmail.com uh, on Twitter at Welsh History podcast or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast, and you can contact us on anything else, on any other subject at distractionsmedia.com. Until next time, everyone, take care. Have a great day. Bye. This
1: has been a Distractions Media production, and for everything we do, check out distractionsmedia.com.